Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting podcast and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 30 and we have Natalie Hinckley joining the show. Natalie is a registered bookmaker in Victoria and has been frequenting Victorian racetracks for over a decade, starting out as a bookies clerk. Natalie talks about the evolution of bookmaking over the last decade, including the changes in top fluctuation betting, predicting horse racing markets, and using market intelligence to assist her bookmaking. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy my chat with Natalie Hinckley. Today, I'm joined by Nat Hinckley. Nat, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So Nat, we usually start with background. So I want to delve a little bit into your past. You're uh, obviously heavily involved in horse racing, bookmaking, betting. So why don't you get started with, I guess, your early days and how you developed uh, your betting acumen and bookmaking acumen and what you spent your time doing to, to where you are now. Yep. Okay. So I'm currently 29, living out of Melbourne registered bookmaker in Victoria. Um, People ask me how I got into it, whether I had um, any family that was involved in bookmaking. Well, I didn't. I used to bring the form guide to school when I was about 13 in year seven at an all-girls school, and I used to try and get the girls to bet with me, which didn't go down too well. And um, I got caught by the coordinator, and she persisted to ring up my mum and tell my mum I had a gambling problem. So I had to give that the um, spear for a few years, and... um, Mum kind of convinced me to end up and go into university, but it really wasn't what I wanted to do, accounting and financial planning. So I got a job with a bookmaker when I, as soon as I turned 18, and I really haven't looked back for the last 11, 12 years. Ended up getting my bookmaker's license about two and a half, three years ago, and by God, I've seen a lot of things change in the last 12 years over the um, turnover of money on race courses and corporates coming in and how they influence the markets and prices and things like that. So 18 years of age, you got your first bookmaking job. So what was that like? Were you on track every Saturday? Were you working during the week? You'd probably finished high school by then, I would imagine. So take us through that at age 18. Okay, so I finished high school, yep, got the job. I still went to university, so I was going to uni about three, four days a week, and I was working on every Saturday and every Wednesday and probably the Friday nights back at Mooney Valley at that stage and um, did that for another four years while I finished the uni degree and um, instead of using the uni degree I pretty much got into it full time and worked for a a fair few bookmakers uh, over the next few years to try and learn as much as I possibly could and uh, yeah ended up getting a license. So what was it like at the track in what 2007 I guess 2008 maybe when you were a young female bookies clerk, I would imagine, and you're going to sort of three times a week. What was it like for you back then? I'm sure there wouldn't have been too many other 18-year-old women taking bets, you know, on, in race courses around Victoria. Was that the case? Oh, absolutely. And it's still the case today. There's not many females 
in this caper. It is a very male-dominated industry. And, um, yeah, you've got to put up with the boys for the most of it and handle them and keep them under wraps, which is a big job in itself sometimes. I have no doubt. I'm sure there's there's a lot of characters and egos out there, so I'm sure they've um, given you grief all the way along. But what about university? What did you study there? Uh, so I did an economics and finance degree, and I actually continued on to do an accounting degree, and I got about three quarters of the way through that, and I kind of gave up because it just wasn't something I really wanted to do. My passion was in bookmaking and um, the fast pace and the um, – yeah, I'm a sucker for the pressure and the stress, and I really excel under it. So did did any of that overlap, though? Did you use some of the, I guess, classes and, and the textbooks and some of the exams you were doing for accounting and finance and economics? Is some of that useful, and do you use that in your, I guess, bookmaking and understanding the odds and the fluctuations and the percentages and what all that means? Oh, absolutely. Now I do. I mean, things have changed a lot in the last five years since the corporates have came into things, and and watching markets and uh, depicting and, and trying to predict when prices are going to go off or prices are going to drift out, um, I did gain a lot of information from doing the economics and finance to go through that. Who did you learn from the most when you were coming through the ranks and, and going to the tracks and things like that? Were there some people that stood out over the years who've had a bigger impact than others and I guess the way they operated, the way they approached things, maybe they were more professional, maybe they weren't, maybe they just had a... A different style are there a few people who did certain things that you thought were you know useful to carry forward and, and use those things now with what you're doing oh definitely there's a um a handful of bookmakers that have had their license or they might be you know 60 something years old now and um the best ones are the ones that have actually changed their theories and their bookmaking over time to adapt to the certain conditions that have changed the whole marketing game which is Anthony Doherty and Ray Swanee and they're phenomenal bookmakers because they can adapt with the times and they adapt with the technology that's overcome out in the last 10 to 12 years while I've been there anyway. So what's a typical week for you then? You're obviously bookmaking now. What is, you know, what's a normal seven days look for, look like for you? Is it similar every day? Is it completely different? Are you on the road? Are you, you know, what's sort of a, a normal a normal week look like for you? Well, I'll give you my last week. I started... Monday to Chuka, went to Mildura on Tuesday, then had Wednesday off to regroup after the big drive to Mildura. Ballarat on the Thursday, got back to Mooney Valley on the Friday night, and then over to Gunbower on Saturday, which was the first time I went to Gunbower. So I am doing a lot of miles, and I'm probably doing about 2,000 kilometres a week. So what, you're driving, what, three, four, five hours just to get to these tracks, and then you're bookmaking there for five or six hours and another five or six hours on the road or is that exaggerating a little bit? No, that's probably perfectly right. So Mildura is about five and a half hours from where I live in Melbourne. So that's usually an overnight trip. I don't tend to do 11 hours driving in one day. And when you do get to the races, you're there from about 12 o'clock and you're out of there by 5.30. So you're only there for five and a half hours and it's a five and a half hour drive. So a big part of the job is driving and dodging kangaroos. So why do you go to all the tracks then? Obviously, it's, you know, 2017, a lot of people have corporate accounts, they're betting online, they've got access to all the races, you know, they can watch it wherever they are on their phone, on their laptop, anything like that. What's the value for you going to the tracks? Well, that is a good question. Um, there is not much cash on the racetrack these days. The majority of cash that still is on the racetrack is generally hot money from stables or, or professional punters. Uh, the advantage of me for going to the racetrack is that I'm able to bet with other bookmakers 
which I don't have that same ability if I was to sit at home um, playing and punting myself. So, so when you're at these rural tracks, you know, driving four, five, six hours to get to, what's the betting environment like there? What's what's the you know typical race day look like? Obviously, there's probably not going to be too many people attending the track because of the the distances and whatnot. What's it? What's the betting environment like? It's very quiet now. There's not much going on at all, but that doesn't mean that you can't switch off and you can't tune off because as a bookmaker, you're um, liable to put prices up on the board. So if you switch off for two seconds and there's a big market mover, well, there's always someone there, whether it's a Betfair trader that goes to the racetrack to bet with bookies and lay off on Betfair or whether there's other bookmakers that tend to do the same thing these days. That's just what happens, I guess. So if there's only professional money or there's only agents there who are probably betting for with professionals uh, on their side, what's it's still valuable for you to be there? Obviously, there's certain outs people can get online and there's obviously Betfair, but what else is at the track that makes it worthwhile for those and I guess the agents to be there? They've obviously got to be getting an edge or feel like they they can get an edge by being at the track. Is that how it is or what's the the main reasons why a lot of those punters who are at the track are there now? Um, well, because it's it's quite tough to get on these days. So, I mean, once you're marked as a, a very good punter and a very good client, um, most of these corporates will only bet you to win a 1000 at the price that they decide to put up. So if you go to, say, Ballarat on a Thursday, which I went last Thursday, there's eight bookmakers there. So I know not all the time this, the bookmakers that these bookmakers are going to put or put up the same price, but these bookmakers then actually have to bet someone on course to win a thousand dollars as well. So for these clients and these punters, it gives them another avenue or another way to get on. And remember, they're bringing their computers to the racetrack as well, so they're still betting with the corporates. They've just got that additional um, avenue of being able to get on on course with bookmakers there as well. So how much money can these people bet? If you've got to stand at the racetrack and it's whether it's a Tuesday afternoon in the middle of nowhere or even a Saturday, is there's there's limits, right, that they can bet with you now? Is that correct? That's correct. So it's to win $1,000. So if I have a price up on the board, someone wants to back that horse with me, I am liable to bet them to win $1,000. And is that a good thing for you and your business or would you prefer to be able to choose to do whatever you want? Because it seems like, you know, you see a lot of the corporates being able to change prices change stakes change offerings to all sorts of punters or just close their accounts down if you're on track is that is it a good thing to be able to force bookmakers to take a bet even if it is you know someone who wants to get a lot of volume down it's only a thousand to win a thousand is that a a good or a bad thing for bookmaking on track um, it was definitely a good a good thing well, what happened was the rule actually got changed just over 12 months ago where bookmakers uh, last year had to bet to win 1500 however no corporates were liable to bet on victorian racing to win any kind of certain amount so they could just literally just knock you back for whatever bet you wanted to have so the thousand dollar rule came in for the corporates and the victorian bookmakers association decided that the 1500 dollars rule was too much and they brought it down to a thousand dollars now the 1500 dollars rule was the same rule the day one that i got into the industry which I find is a little bit ridiculous that they brought it down from 1500 to 1000 because the value of money tends to double every 10 years. So day one when I've got in there to win, a, to win $1,500 was your obligation. Well, 12 years down the track, you could kind of have the same argument that it should be to win 3000 not not now 1000 which I think is a little bit silly. But um, that's what the on-course bookmakers uh, push for and they got that um, rule changed last year and it got through. So the, so the bookmakers on track... 
are they they couldn't be thrilled that they're just getting smart money or people who are going to the track with their laptops and probably trading on Betfair or a few other places and having a few different accounts and placing bets and then having an additional out with the the on course bookmakers being able to get you know to win a thousand. I can't imagine all the bookies who are on course are going to be thrilled about just betting against those kinds of people because rural tracks during the week or even on weekends, there's not a lot of $100 average Joe punters like me there willing to bet for entertainment who they can make a bigger percentage off. Is there is that what's happening and the, the bookmakers then are just leaving the on course? Absolutely. Um, they're kind of dropping like flies, especially the, um, the average age of bookmakers is don't know what the median age would be but it'd probably be over 60 these days and um a lot of them are half retired they choose to elect to only do the carnival meetings now like the country cups and the the big days at Flemington Caulfield and Mooney Valley because they're kind of the only days where you're actually probably half a chance of holding any cash which we call mug or egg punters on course so yeah bookmakers really they're not a big fan of these professionals but um I am I love them so why do you love them so much? Well, because I don't have to do form because they do it all for you. So if you're on there watching Dynamic Odds, you can almost predict what's going to happen and what they're backing and what's going to come in and what's going to go off without having to do eight hours of form the day or night before to get that edge over someone else. The Betfair Exchange isn't a house that sets the odds. It's betting at its purest. One punter's opinion against another's. Play the game within the game at betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So if you see someone who you know well bet with you and they obviously know what they're doing and then you can watch the marketplace, whether it's probably not necessarily on the track, but you can watch dynamic odds and see what all the other corporates are doing and then what you just use that information for yourself to be able to get in a good position? Absolutely. So if you see an agent or something on course and you've got the price up on your board, and they've backed it with you. Well, don't forget that these corporates actually have to bet other bookmakers to win a thousand as well. So, if I think that's hot money, I'll refinance that bet straight away, and probably try and back it for myself. So, how do you know when it's going to be hot money? I'm sure there's instances where it's you know five into four sixty, and then back out to five fifty. How do you spot the difference between that and you know five into four forty into four twenty, and starts three eighty? It's all about dynamic odds. And who you know. So, I mean, there's a lot of faces on the racetrack and you know who they're betting for. And 90% of the time, those things tend to go off if they're hot red clients. So what are you looking for on dynamic odds then? What are the some of the things or the signs to tell you? Or is it just a little bit of intuition? It's a little bit about knowing what's happening on course and then just using all that information to come out with, a, I guess, a consensus in your mind about which way the market's going to go? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if you sit there and you watch Dynamic Odds and you've got all these um, corporate um, numbers and things on your screen, you can kind of um, see a few start to turn them in. And if you've got accounts with everyone, which now they've all obliged to bet you to win a 1,000, and the price starts to go with half of them, well, there's still the other half that you can kind of try and, and beat and get on and back those horses to win for. And what about Betfair? What what role does Betfair play now in, you know, I guess, your business and how you're, you know, treating a race, for example? Are you watching it like a hawk? Are you, you know, placing a fair few, you know, bets there or hedging there? Or what what type of role is is Betfair playing in your overall business? Uh, in my scheme of things, I don't tend to usually lay anything on Betfair because 
got to remember that we pay turnover tax on course and Betfair do take out a commission. As a registered bookmaker, you do get a discounted rate on Betfair for the commission. However, you're still um, kind of doubly paying a turnover tax. So don't tend to usually lay anything on Betfair. I'd rather lay it on course if I do want to lay a horse. Um, it is good for betting back, though, as a bookmaker. Um, there are times when there's a lot of stable money on course and uh, they generally just want to bet for cash. Uh, so you've then laid a horse at a locked-in price and you can kind of bet back on Betfair, which might be four, five, six, seven rolls over at times. So what, do they treat betting and laying on Betfair differently? Is that what you meant? Or is am I mixed that up? No, no. So you still pay the commission whether you lay a horse or whether you back a horse. That's if you win off the race. So if you lose off the race, you don't pay any commission whatsoever. Okay, okay. But um, the advantage is, is taking, you know, seven rolls over on Betfair. Which will yeah, which will cover your um commission anyway. But generally, when you do lay a horse, uh, you probably ninety percent of the time can lay that same horse off Betfair, uh, sorry, on course through a Betfair trader or something like that. That's on course without having to pay the double commission. Okay, and what's usually the differences in the market between on course and Betfair? Is the is the marketplace on course competitive compared to Betfair, or is it just certain instances where there's a large discrepancy on a maybe a single horse that's had a fair bit of money for cash on course and then you can find a good spot on Betfair? Yeah, there is some large discrepancies on Betfair, especially with um, uh, big-priced horses, like your 51s, 61s to 101s, because we don't generally try uh, – we don't generally put up prices probably over 200 to 1 on course. However, you can bet these things back on Betfair at 600, 700s a lot of the time. So that, that's the advantage of betting on Betfair, whereas you can't get that same advantage with the corporates either. It's not often that they bet probably over 250 to 1. Yeah, that makes sense. So I want to talk about top fluck money. Can you, maybe when you were 18 and working on course, what was the top fluck money situation like? Was it rampant everywhere? People were betting a lot of top fluck money? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there was a lot of phone clients and um, bookmakers used to offer a price of top fluctuation. And they used to work out the top fluctuation based on the bookmaker's price. So if you had, um, say, 10 bookmakers at, uh, at Ballarat on a Thursday, there used to be a betting supervisor that used to go to the track and work out the APM price. So that was the best price that had to be on three boards of the bookmakers on course. That's now changed. We now use the VOP, which is a Victorian official pricing system, which now feeds off dynamic odds. And that's based on the, I think it's the top four corporate prices now. So the top flux price is no longer based on what the bookmakers bet on course. It's based on what the corporates bet. So if you were advising a pro better back in you know, 2008, let's say, would you be telling them to be betting top flux at all? When is it good to be betting top flux as opposed to taking just a fixed, fixed price? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Is it always? Are you always saying, look, just if something's 480, and you're not sure whether it's going to go in or out necessarily, but it's a good price for you, is it better almost always to take top flux because it's very hard to predict the market? And yes, it could come in, but also it may not, so you might be able to get a better price. Is it easier just to let top flux take care of itself instead of trying to predict when it's best to take that 480 or not? Generally, but you've got to remember back when, um, or still today, uh, bookmakers and corporates do not bet top flux if a horse has already gone off. So if the horse is five dollars into say four sixty, there's no corporate or bookmaker, I wouldn't think, on course that would bet you top flux if that horse has gone off. 
Right, that makes sense. They wouldn't want to be liable for that higher price. Was it always like that? Was that, or would it be those phone clients who call in four hours before a race and say, "Look, I want to bet these five horses. Just give me top flock," and then they just, you know, close their form guide, sit back, have a few beers, and, and watch the races, and not have to worry about monitoring things and keeping an eye on the, the fluctuations or the market moves. They ultimately just get the best. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there was a lot of that back in the day. Well, there probably still is today, but we don't tend to have a lot of top flock money that comes to the race course anymore as because the prices aren't um, directed by us anymore, which, um, yeah, back in the day a lot of course prices could be manipulated, especially in the country midweek for the top flock price. It didn't take a lot of top flock money to filter back to course for a horse to um, be kept unders or turned in by um, bookmakers on course. So explain that a little bit more. Let's say it's a $4 chance and there's a lot of top flock money. That money then filters all the way from wherever it's being bet all the way to the on-course bookmakers and they accept that liability for that money and then they, instead of opening at $4, they'll open at $3 so that that's the top flock. Is that what happened? Yes, exactly. So say um, before the prices used to go up, which generally used to go up 20 minutes before the race, <clears throat> Um, there used to be top flock money that used to come to the course before the 20-minute mark when there was no prices um, up on the screen. Now, say one book may, may have got hold of a substantial amount of top flock money. They could then go and bet back with other bookmakers on course, top flock, which they then all had a kind of theory that if they didn't put up what the horse probably should have been, which was $4, and they put up $3, well, then they're only laying it at $3 price, not its actual what should have been its price at $4, all massive manipulation, which now doesn't generally happen. And <clears throat> that's why there's not a lot of top flock money that filters through to the track anymore. Right. So by pissing off the punters who, even if they won and they got 320 about a $4 chance and they're like, hang on, 320 about a $4 chance, how is that the top flock? That eventually people would just stop betting top flock, right? Oh, absolutely. Or they look for another avenue. So they might then start betting with corporate bookmakers who might offer them a top flock price with a tote guarantee right so if that horse the bookmakers might have put up three dollars that horse i mean the tote if that horse won and crossed the line the totes might have paid four dollars four twenty four forty i see okay and what about even in those situations not everyone's betting on the same horse are they or is it a lot of circumstances where there's just so much more money on one of the fancied couple of horses that it's a pretty good scenario for the bookmakers to manipulate the price so it stays you know a, f a fair way under a fair fluctuation let's say is was it almost always that you know you could have a, one of those horses that it was a good idea to depress its price rather because obviously there's other people betting top flock on other horses in the same race but would it be a handful of people at you know large amounts of money and, and bigger bets that you would try and depress the price oh definitely and sometimes it wouldn't always work to that same effect because the corporates would push horses out and Betfair would always be a large price and there was always, you know, greedy bookmakers where they might have got $500 out of a horse top flock, which probably wasn't enough for them. So the top flock might have been $3 and Betfair was out to $5. So they then start pushing it out because they know if they then lay it again at, say, $3.50, $4, they can still back at Betfair at $5 and they've still got an earn in it for them. So you lay something at $4, you're backing it back at $5 on Betfair you have your half back at the $5, then you've then laid it at $3 again. 
So there was a lot of there was a lot of times that um, things like that would happen. It would all depend on the volume of money that was um, available top flock on course. So how likely was it that you could get burnt though when the? Because I'm guessing if they if they open everything up, you know that horse everyone opens up at three dollars. That six dollar chance then that can't be six dollars. It's got to be seven or eight dollars surely. It probably should have been, but do remember there's actually no rule of percentages of what a bookmaker has to bet so you can go to the races as a bookmaker and put up 180 200 if you like to you can go to the races and put up and bet 110 percent if you like to there's absolutely no rule whatsoever in regards to that so they could quite easily have the four dollar chance at three dollars and then the six dollar chance at six dollars and yeah or even at four dollars if they don't really want to lay it or they don't want to take a bet on it but it all really depended on how betfair was trading at the present point in time as well that was the holy grail? Yeah, so if Betfair was, say, $8 and a bookmaker had up $6, he tends to push it out to $6.50 or $7 just to make sure there's some sort of a an earn still in it for him if he do does wish to um, bet it back. He, I should say, he or she. Uh, <laughs> so what has been the impact of all these corporates who've come over from Europe, the, you know, the Ladbrokes and Paddy Powers of the world who have gotten involved in Australian racing? A lot of people are quick to point out of the negatives. What are some of the positives? Are, is it all negatives? Are people right? You know, they're always cutting people off. They're facilitating the smaller punters and all the professionals and a lot of the money is getting pushed elsewhere or pushing towards sports or whatever. Is that true or is it, you know, a bit of give and take for those European corporates? I think it's a bit of give and take there. I mean, the corporates now do give you another avenue of, of, of somewhere to bet back and to get off a, a certain horse if you've already laid it. I mean, you've got to, people have got to understand that these people are trying to run a business as well, and you can understand why they don't really want to bet your smart punters. They just want to bet your average Joes who are going to financially lose over every 12 months, um, which was a major reason of why the $1,000 limit got changed with the corporate bookmakers, which was an absolutely fantastic thing, I think, for the industry. Instead of a corporate saying, oh, no, we don't want to bet you because you're too smart, they now have to bet you to win $1,000. So there's a lot of corporates out there, and if you've got accounts with quite a few of them, you can get on for a decent amount of money these days. Interesting, because the whole, I mean, it's risk management essentially, and I know it's a bit of a cop-out, but the fact that you have to take bets and you have to do certain things is mandated. I guess they can put in rules, whatever whatever rules they want in place, but it seems... I guess it's unusual in certain circumstances that they force these bookmakers to take bets. But I know it's great for the industry and it's good for facilitating volume and, and liquidity in the markets as well. But it's still an interesting concept where if you want to place, if you want to, you know, put up your market on horse racing, you've got to take a thousand dollar, or you got to, you know, take a bet to win a thousand dollars no matter what. It's I get, I get it, but also it's on the other hand, it's funny how a lot of these corporates have great traders and great people in place, great teams working on. You know, all these meetings doing really, you know, cutting edge form and understand the markets perfectly. And then at the same time, they're not willing to really take a bet or take on anyone at all. They've obviously got their percentage baked into the prices. So it seems strange, too, that they want to invest all that time and money and resource into great trading teams and then not take on the market as well. Yeah, well, it is kind of a contradiction, isn't it? I mean, they do pay people quite a substantial amount of money to um, do form and and set their prices for them. So you'd think that they would um, have some kind of confidence in these traders' abilities at these corporates. But um, I guess these days a professional punter is your um, your god in this kind of game sense. So are there st- 
the same amount of professional punters now as there were 10 years ago, let's say? No, I think they've kind of increased. I mean, they've now got uh, technologies just really come from so far in the last 10 years since I've been around. And um, there's a lot of professional punters out there with their pricing systems that they've created on programs, on computers and things like that, where they simply just run through data in the morning and it, it generally just spits out a, a pricing quota system for them. And it's, well, it's, it's pretty damn good most of the time, I can tell you that. So what is it, just pure mathematics? They're just using a lot of different variables, using a very advanced algorithm, you know, let the computer do all the work, they print out a market and they bet overs. Is that is that all they're doing, quite simply? I mean, it's not as simple yeah, as that. Yeah, I think that's what's, yeah, what's changed the game in the last few years. I mean, you, you always had your professional punters and they were always based on um, doing form and, and things like that, whereas these days there's a lot that just have these um, magnificent algorithm systems that, um, yeah, pretty much just runs through form and data for them and, and spits out a price and, and that's what they pretty much go off and it's it's right a lot of the time. So is there a place for, you know, whether it's someone who watches the horses in the mounting yard or, you know, has other ways to, you know, they focus on the pointy end of the market and then find $2.60 chances that they really, really like based on doing old school form, we'll call it. Are that, is there a place for those types of people to win or is it just too hard these days? Oh, no, absolutely. There's still a lot of those punters around that still um, have got their same system that they used probably 20, 30 years ago. Um, forms become more readily available, though. So, um, as you know, these traders have got access to such, well, the exact same form as these professionals have got access to. So, yeah, times have changed, and it's come a long way in the last 10 years. But it is very interesting to see how um, participants in the industry adapt to these changes. Yeah, absolutely. Is is it better now, for want of a better word, than it was? I mean, there's been a lot of advancements in technology and information and broadcasts and all those types of things. Is it is it a better marketplace now than it was 10 years ago? It's probably better for a punter, not for a bookmaker. Um, I probably missed the glory days, which were probably 30 years ago before the poking machines came involved. And um, if you wanted to gamble, you kind of had to go to either a casino or the race course. And these days... Your average Joe can walk into the casino at 3, 4 a.m. when they finish their night shift and, and get their gambling fix that way. You never used to be able to do that. And that's how and that's how bookmakers used to make a lot and a lot of money because there was so much cash and, and egg money, mug money, that used to filter down to the race course every day. Now there's not so much of that because there's so many more avenues of um, gambling, even sports gambling these days. Yeah, there's events on all the time. There's new matches, soccer, basketball, tennis. That's right. You can sit at home on your lounge room watching the football and and have a bet with whoever you want. Let's talk price. Unlike bookies and totes, the Betfair Exchange is a low-margin, buy-sell, fixed-odds marketplace where the value stays with the punter, not the house. Ready for the game within the game? Join betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So what does what does the spring carnival entail for you? Are you going to be at all the meetings, um, embracing a lot of that? Probably more mug money than you've seen for the the rest the other eleven months of the year. Well, that's right. Yeah. So for a bookmaker, your glory kind of time for the year is um, the spring carnival time, which is when people generally um, want to have a bet with a bookmaker on course. A because there's a lot of um, interference with the reception at these race courses these days with the overload on the systems 
the telephone systems and people aren't always um, able to get access to their corporate accounts. So they tend to bet with bookmakers on course, cash. Interesting. I didn't think of that. That makes sense, though. If there's 100,000 people at Flemington, it seems more difficult than it is at Ballarat when there's, you know, 100 people or 1,000 people. That's right. But um, they have improved the um, phone reception at the city tracks these days. So over the last couple of years, going back three or four years ago, it was a little bit more difficult, but um, they have improved that these days. But I tend to spend most of my time in country Victoria. And, um, yeah, once you get a, a few thousand people to a provincial race course up there, say Gunbower on Saturday, there is absolutely no reception whatsoever. So you've got no avenue except for the tab or the on-course bookmakers. Yeah, of course. So so what about this idea that bookmakers always win, bookmakers drive the, the fast car and wear the nice suit and have the bag full of cash at the end of the day? Is that exactly the case or is it quite easy, especially these days with, like you mentioned, a lot more pro punters out there and a lot more people with more sophisticated systems who, is it? are you able to get burnt pretty quickly and pretty easily if you let your guard down? Absolutely. You can't even switch off for two seconds these days because um, the game's changed. Um, bookmakers are trying to shoot down other bookmakers as we call it these days. So if another bookmaker at the same race course as you has a price up that you think's a good price and that the horse might start shorter or they're taking shorter on Betfair, a lot of the time these bookmakers try and get their other colleagues at the race course. So it's kind of dog-eat-dog dog on the race course this day, these days, which I find quite amusing because um, there's a lot of animosity and um, yeah, stuff going on at the race courses between bookmakers, but at the end of the day and at the end of the conclusion of the meeting, they're all um, meeting back at the pub or having dinner with, with each other and everything's all good again. So what's the future hold for you then? What's the plan in the next, you know, six months, two years, five years, 20 years? Are you going to continue bookmaking as normal and, and go through the ups and downs and the trends of the racetrack? Or what do you foresee as the, I guess, the path for you? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to give this game up. I mean, I love it too much. I, I really do enjoy going to the uh, carnivals, not necessarily for working purposes, but for the fun that happens at night as well. But um, I think to my advantage is I've, I've been brought up with technology and I can adapt and change and change my mentality and change my game style uh, in the same line as technology and, and other things happen inside that circle. Um, the average age of bookmakers, as I said before, is you know on the increase, obviously, and there's very, very few that have, um, are my age. It's probably only a handful. And so eventually in, say, 10 years' time, I'm tipping that there's a lot of these bookmakers which are now 60 to 70, which are now then going to be 70 to 80 that won't no longer want to do it. And there's not many new ones coming through the industry. So I think that would be to my advantage to stay in this game for as long as possible. And you'll always be on the bookmaking side? You won't switch over and help punters or try and help people build their business if they're doing you know different things, whether it be forming syndicates and all that sort of stuff? Do you think you'll always be on the bookmaking side? Oh, I'd never turn down a good opportunity if I ever saw one. But at this point in time, I'm enjoying what I do and I, I love what I do. And I do do a lot of travel, but it is quite enjoyable, especially to spend time in um, a lot of these country towns in Victoria and and see these different um, country ways of life and, and these really friendly people in the country. I do enjoy that. I do do a lot of overnight kind of trips in the country, which I, I do love and do enjoy. So I couldn't really see myself giving that up in the next five years, but... I mean, we all don't know what the future's going to hold, do we, Jake? 
That is very true. One thing that I foresee in my future, uh, hopefully, and I've never done this sadly, but it's it's something on my list is Warrnambool. And for most people who are listening, who are from obviously Victoria, would understand what we're talking about. But for others, they may not. Do you want to just take us through a what Warrnambool is and what the carnival means to that area of Victoria, and and some of the highlights over the years, or you know some of the reasons why it draws people back every year. Well, A, I'll just give you a tip. If anyone is thinking about going to Warnable or if, if you want to go to Warnable, A, bring Panadol, bring Hydrolytes and bring plenty of water or Powerade because you will need it. It is just one big party. You mean the next morning you'll need it? Oh, take it before, take it the <laughs> night of, take it the next day because it's a non-stop. It's a three-day event down in country Victoria, down in Warnable, um, just on the ocean there of South Victoria. It's a jumps racing carnival, which has been going for 100 and something years, I believe. And it's a three-day straight event in the middle of, at the start of May, sorry, which is absolutely freezing cold, wintry conditions. And there's about 10 races every day, which is very testing on the body because you've got to remember you've got to head out that night and party till about 2 a.m. and, and regroup and get back up at 7 and, and get to the race course again. But it's a fantastic carnival. I also highly recommend Swan Hill as well which is another three-day carnival. That's in northern Victoria, and it's not so testing on the body, Swan Hill. You won't need as many Panadols and Hydrolytes. I'm, I'm certainly noticing more and more of the corporate suit-wearing type sneaking down to Warnable more and more, so hopefully I can get in before it gets overtaken by uh, some of the city slickers who are, who are venturing down to those types of places, but maybe, maybe Swan Hill has to go on the list then. Swan Hill's got to go on the list, but I did... I did attend two other carnivals this year. One was in Darwin. Okay. And the other one was in Cairns. Bit, bit warmer then. And I can highly recommend. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, in the middle of winter when it's freezing cold down in Victoria. Get up to Darwin, northern uh, Northern Australia, New Northern Territory, or um, Cairns, which was absolutely phenomenal, which wasn't the Cairns Cup. It was actually the Cairns Amateurs. Two-day carnival up there. That is highly recommended as well. Nat, I really appreciate your time. It's been great having a chat about you and your business and what you're up to. So, again, many thanks for, for taking some time out for, for this episode. And I look forward to seeing you at Swan Hill and Warnable and a few of these other places that I venture out to in the future. So, all the best with the bookmaking and the punting and, and everything else you're doing. And um, it's been great having a chat. Thank you. And if there's any listeners out there that ever get to the country Victoria races, Come and find me and spot me and, and tell me that you've listened to the show and I'll look after you with some good odds if you want to have a bet. There you go. There you go. Anyone who's interested in getting out to the tracks, I'm sure they'll uh, they'll be able to find you. It sounds like there's a lot of 60-year-old males bouncing around. That's right. So. I'm, I'm not hard to find. I'm 29 and a female on course bookmaker. Nat, thank you very much again for your time um, and all the very best. Thank you. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and please support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Gamble responsibly.